0: You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. As you know, it is early October and with the fall comes a change in leaf colors. Now I grew up in New Hampshire and so the leaf changing up there is more uh, colorful as far as multi-colors than it is in Colorado. We have reds and oranges in addition to yellow, but yellow is a wonderful color too, so if you're from Colorado originally, don't be offended by that, okay? You can drive up I-70 into the mountains or go north or, or go up 285, and there's just whole groves of trees that are changing colors, and it's beautiful. Now when you do that, maybe you've already done that this year, maybe you plan to do that in the weeks ahead, when you do that, how many trees are you hoping to see, it's kind of an odd question, isn't it? You're not looking for individual trees. Like, oh, hey, there's a tree that has leaves changed. No, the beauty is found in the forest of trees, is it not? In the expanse of things that you see. We even have a phrase for that, right? Don't miss the forest for the trees. And it would be ridiculous to go leaf peeping, I think is what you call it, which is Again, a funny term to me, uh, that's neither here nor there. But when you go to look at the foliage, you don't go for individual trees. You don't want to get so focused on one detail that you miss the whole situation. And in some ways, I think this is an analogy for what's happened in the area of worship. In recent years, the American church has, has so focused on a few of the trees, a few of the components of worship, that we've really missed the forest. We've missed what the Bible teaches us about worship. Because the Bible's teaching, when we understand what worship is all about, isn't just about an issue here or an issue there. There's an expanse of beauty that we see in Scripture. And hopefully we'll see that today. Now, I failed to to mention this last week, but there's no agenda that I have in preaching on worship. It's right here in our text in Colossians 3. And as we work through the Word of God in an expository manner, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we want to tackle issues that come up in the text. And because we've not talked about worship and what biblical worship is in a long time, we wanted to take some time, I wanted to take some time to understand what Scripture says so that we can live it out to the fullest and understand better what we're doing, not just here in our corporate worship gathering but how we are to live our lives day in and day out. And so last week, we defined biblical worship, we borrowed a definition, as the response that comes out of our hearts when we encounter the true and living God. And as we've seen in the book of Colossians, worship, biblical worship, is Christ-treasuring. He is preeminent in all the universe. And when we treasure Jesus supremely, that means that we will respond to him with actions and emotions that are worthy of him. Colossians 3, 15 through 17 teaches five principles about Christ-treasuring worship. And we saw a couple of those last week. First, Christ-treasuring worship from verse 15 promotes harmony and requires unity. That's not something that could easily be said of worship discussions in the last 30 years. There's been a lot of fighting and bickering when the Bible calls us to unity and peace. And so we have to learn what the true principles are and how to agree on those and then give room to others who may disagree on application. So true biblical worship requires unity. It promotes harmony. But second, Christ-treasuring worship is an outflow of a word-saturated life. That's from verse 16. And really, the more that the word of Christ dwells in us, the more deeply our worship will be, the more deep our worship will be. That word dwell means to make, make someone's home. It's, it's, we use the word nesting in our culture, that when a, a, an expectant mom wants to get the nursery ready, she starts nesting and, and completing the room. The word of God has to, to come deep in our hearts, just like we just sang, it deep in us. And so as the word inhabits our hearts, we see more of Christ, we behold his glory, and our worship is deepened. Now, our worship is also word-centered. It's guided by the word of God. So that's why under letter B there, the regulative principle. That means that, that what the word of God calls us to do, we do. The opposite approach would be to say that anything the word of God doesn't talk about is free reign as well. We want to limit ourselves to what the Word of God tells us we ought to do. That includes singing, certainly, but public worship includes preaching and teaching, the reading of the Word, observing the ordinances as we've done the last couple of weeks. And the Word is central in it all. Now, letter C might be a little bit uncomfortable because all believers participate in worship. And worship participation isn't just showing up and filling a seat on a Sunday, Worship is being engaged in it. And our worship is directed to God. There's a vertical component, but really the the beauty of this verse shows us that there's a horizontal ministry that takes place when we gather together. We are one body in Christ. And when we sing, especially when we sing, we're not just singing me and God. We are singing to one another and with one another. And I use several examples of songs that that help us to think about our ministry with other people. Actually, Bob, can you go back to uh, the last song we sang, Speak, O Lord? I think it's the second stanza. Yeah, 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 good. So in the middle of this stanza, it says, cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. What's the pronouns here? It's not me, it's our. Now, some songs are written in the first person, that's fine. But as you're singing this, were you thinking about your faith? Or were you thinking about, Lord, minister to the people next to me? Cause their hearts to see. Cause their eyes to be opened to your love in the word of God. Help them to trust the power of your word. See, that's the horizontal component in our singing. Thank you. Corporate worship then also includes singing. Because we we tend to limit worship just to be singing. But it, it includes more than that, but we don't want to diminish singing either. Now, there are several principles that we've come up with about song selection. How do we pick what songs to sing? This is kind of like a, a framework or a grid as we evaluate what songs are good. Because if you look in a Christian database of songs, do you remember how many songs are out there? 100,000 Christian songs, at least. We can't sing 100,000 songs. Our worship services are long enough. (laughs) So what's the process that we have to choose the songs to sing in corporate worship? Well, we want to make sure that they're biblically true and doctrinally sound. It starts there. If it's false or if it's imbalanced, we don't want to put it as something that we should be striving after. We secondly want to make it distinctly Christian and Trinitarian Third is congregationally focused and unifying. And then fourth is excellent and appropriate. And I finished last week with an appeal to defer to one another, even in corporate worship. Because verse 16 says that there are psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalms are the inspired scripture like the Old Testament psalms. Hymns are more doctrinal in nature. They stand the test of time usually. Spiritual songs are songs that the Spirit gives, the songs that are, are, are coming about by the Spirit's leading. And those songs speak usually to current issues or, or current, uh, current examples of the faith in each generation. And, and the thing about spiritual songs is that they connect differently with different generations. And so what I appealed to us to do is to defer to one another, to remember that our singing has a horizontal ministry to one another, and when we believe that, it frees us from clamoring for what I want. And that I don't like that song as much as the other ones. Well, look around me. There are many other people who are being ministered to it. So now I can sing from the heart because it has horizontal ministry to others. That brings us to the third principle, which is also found in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, here it is, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, that last phrase is what we're going to focus on. And, and that word grace, if you have a modern translation, is usually the word thankfulness or gratitude. When we gather for public worship, our atmosphere should have and be full of gratitude. Principle number three, Christ-treasuring worship has an atmosphere of gratitude. We don't gather because we're depressed or because we're just going through the motions week in and week out. We gather because we are thankful people. Now, as we break down this idea of gratitude or thankfulness, I think there are three ingredients that that are found here that on the whole, worship will have, and not every song or every sermon will focus on all three of these ingredients, but on the whole, this should be the atmosphere of our worship, and they are these, joy, reverence, and hope. First of all, worship is joyful. Psalm 95, the reference there on the screen says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And I don't think this is necessarily complicated because when we receive something great, when we receive a wonderful gift, it brings us joy. Think about Christmas coming up, and yes, Christmas is coming already. We're only two and a half months away. And if you have children at home, they probably have a Christmas list. Maybe if you have adult children, they have a Christmas list already. And when they get something from their list, what usually happens? They're not, oh, that. Hmm." There's a joy and an exuberance. I mean, maybe some of you are weird. I don't know. But when I give something to my kids that they were hoping for, it's like the greatest thing in the world. There's joy that comes with that. The opposite of joy is melancholy. Perhaps you've been in churches where the worship service felt depressing. You kind of left like, ooh, do these people know that they're saved? Joy is an appropriate response. But there's a reverence to our joy. We're we're, we're not silly. We're not artificial. We don't try to pump up happiness as if that could be manufactured. We approach God reverently. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 teaches this specifically, verse 28 especially. And this whole passage as a whole is talking about Old Testament worship and, or Old Covenant worship and New Covenant worship. When we come to faith in Christ, how do we worship? And maybe someday we'll take a trip through that passage. But Hebrews 12, 28 says this, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Yes, we ought to rejoice at what Christ has done to save us. That if we name the name of Jesus, we've been delivered from eternal damnation in hell. There is forgiveness of sins. But that doesn't give us liberty to just act flippantly. Our God is a consuming fire. He is holy and righteous. And yet, because of Jesus, we get to draw near to him. We get to draw near to him. So because of who God is, we approach him reverently, not flippantly or in a trite way. So the first two qualities are joyful reverence, which is a little bit of an interesting connection. Joyful reverence or reverent joy. But how does that attitude of joyful reverence square with the brokenness of our world around us? We just found out news yesterday morning that there was a surprise attack in Israel. There's brokenness in that part of the world. All you got to do is read the headlines. In our country, there are problems and problems. There's chaos in our House of Representatives. There's, there's problems downtown with, with a, a burgeoning number of homeless that need help. There's brokenness in our world. So when we come, do we come and, and, and leave that brokenness and pretend like it doesn't exist? No. The deepest experiences of worship don't ignore the hardships of the world, but engage the hardships biblically. And that means we have hope. Worship is hope-filled. 1 Peter 1 reminds us that we have a living hope in Jesus. That means, and as Peter goes on to say, even in the trials and the pressures and the griefs of life, we have an eternal hope. He says in chapter 1 verse 13, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the songs that Pastor Jerry's introduced in the last several months is, Is He Worthy? And, and this song just illustrates this principle of hope-filled. It says, Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish You could see it all made new. We do. And the rest of the song refocuses our attention on Jesus and the hope that we have. And so every time we gather, we leave not just with joy and reverence in our our hearts, but we leave with hope refilled and restrengthened to go through another week of brokenness because we know Jesus as our Savior. And we have something great that is waiting for us. You see, we're not exempt from suffering in the Christian life. We suffer just like everyone else does, but we suffer differently. We suffer knowing that there is something different waiting us. That the the weight that we are feeling here is producing a different kind of weight up there. So we persevere through hope. You see, worship here on earth is a little reprieve from the pain of life. It's a foretaste of the eternal rest that we will have in heaven. And, and that's why so many of our hymns focus on heaven in the last stanza. We, there are several this morning that, that did that. Think about the last stanza of it is well with my soul. The, he talks about the, the sea billows of grief rolling over us and our sin was paid at the cross. But what does the last stanza say? Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds roll back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. But pause for a moment. How does hope flow out of gratitude? Maybe that connection isn't clear. How does hope flow out of gratitude? Because normally we think of gratitude as something that that is back or past looking. I'm thankful for what's happened. And in in the Christian life, we're thankful for the past. Because in the past, Jesus lived and died and rose again for us. But you see, the, the very definition of our salvation is not just past looking, but forward facing. Because at the cross, Jesus secured not just present life, but eternal life. And so when we gather for worship, we're remembering the truths of of Romans 8.30, that our justification, salvation, and our glorification are so certain that Paul speaks of it in the same sentence with the same effect. That if God has saved you, he will glorify you. And so we're living in this, this intermediary moment This moment where we've got some already things, these things that that we already have in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. He's our down payment. But we're waiting for the not yet when the full payment will come and glory will be our home. So when we come to worship, we're not just rehearsing what has happened. We're anticipating what we believe and what we know will happen. Grateful acceptable worship to God is joyful, reverent, and hope-filled. And these are more than just kind of parts of our atmosphere, like, you know, CO2 or oxygen, you know, that we breathe. These are the very heart affections of Christ-treasuring worship. Because if you back up in Colossians 3 to verses 1 through 4, we are called to set our affections on things above not on things of the earth. And by coming in worship and by being joyful and reverent and hope-filled, we are doing that. And it's helping us to set our affections on the things that are most true of us, not on the things that distract us, like houses and jobs and school schedules and groceries. Those are all necessary. But it lifts our eyes to the glorious future that we, that we have, Now, I think by way of application, these are also the markers we ought to evaluate a worship service with. Instead of focusing on style, like traditional or contemporary, I think we would be better served to evaluate if our worship is these three things, joyful, reverent, and hope-filled. Because as we look at what's happened in the last several decades, the most controversial worship discussion has been, on what style of worship is right. Honestly, I think this is another tree in the forest. It's part of it. We have to know what we believe about it. But if we focus on on style to the exclusion of what the Bible says about worship, we're missing the forest here. Styles and expressions of worship will vary across time periods and cultures. And that may be controversial to you, but think with me. Do we sing Gregorian chants today? How many churches have organs in them anymore? Is that a sin to not have an organ in a worship service? No. But those were present throughout history. Those are time periods that that we don't use the same styles that they did. If you go to the mission field today, worship is going to be different Joe and Nancy Cherian were in Africa, and they sent, us, sent me a video. I think they showed it when they came. They showed a worship service that they attended this year, several months ago. And you know what's really different? You walk in the door, and what do Joe and Nancy do? They split and went different ways. Why? Because in most cultures, men and women don't sit together in worship. Well, that would be different. Imagine if we did that here. We'd have people leave. That's a cultural thing. The music over there in Africa involved a lot of clapping and swaying and tambourines. If someone starts clapping in our worship here, it's a little unusual. Do you realize that when the New Testament talks about worship, it doesn't talk about the style of worship? It focuses on the essence of worship rather than the form. So hear me out. What we need to be clear about are these three biblical principles that guide us in worship. When we practice these principles of joy and reverence of hope, we will have the right atmosphere in worship. And just because a church does traditional worship doesn't mean it meets these qualities. Just because a church is contemporary doesn't mean it meets these qualities. There are a lot of traditional and contemporary churches that are not joyful, reverent, or hope-filled. If we stay fixed on these things, we will be within the stream of acceptable worship. And the important part, I really believe, is to agree on these principles and apply them to our context. And if another church says, yes, I agree with these things, we're going to do it differently over here, then we have to give them room to apply those principles in their situation. Yet, we have to apply these principles here. So why do we have the worship atmosphere that we do? Well, we have chosen to be more conservative in our approach to worship because we feel that it promotes these three principles of joy and reverence and hope. We intentionally do not imitate a concert-like atmosphere with a focus on the performers We want our worship to focus on the Lord and promote congregational ministry and unity rather than individual talent. We also don't want to communicate through our style that this is an entertainment product. You don't come to be entertained, at least I hope you don't. We come as New Testament people to meet with God and worship him and draw near to him and be fixed in him and be anchored in Christ, we do not come to be entertained. And sadly, there are many churches, traditional and contemporary, that have an entertainment feel to the service where the band is performing or the pastor is a performer. Now, there are several ways that we try to cultivate this atmosphere of gratitude and worship to God. And I'd like to let you in on one of the secrets you like, it. you like that, right? You like being let in on a secret here. Do you realize that the structure of our corporate worship service retells the story of redemption? We rehearse the gospel not just in what we say, but in how we present even the structure of our service. Pastor Jerry even mentioned it this morning. Our, I think you said our hymn of confession today. I think that's what you said. So when we come to worship, the word is central, but what are we doing? From beginning to end, the word is what we gather around because the word is the word of Christ. So we begin with a call, an invitation to come worship. So immediately we're saying, here's what we're going to do. And then what we start with is praise and adoration of God, ascribing to him the glory he deserves, seeing him clearly and attributing to him praise. And when we see him, there's an effect, right? You remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees this overarching, just overpowering glory of God. And, and, and he's in awe. And the next thing he does is fall on his face and say, woe is me. Because when we see Jesus, when we see our Father lifted up, it humbles us. And we confess our sinfulness. We confess our need for him. But when we come to him in the gospel, when we confess our need of Christ and rely on him, there's an assurance that comes, that because we know Jesus, we don't have to fear God's punishment. There's no condemnation that we dread, that that being found in Christ means that we are protected and safe. So there's assurance. And then there's thanksgiving, that if if God is who he is and I'm a sinner and I'm assured anyway because of Jesus, then what what can I do? How can I react but to praise, but to thanks? And I surrender my heart to him because we're rebels at heart. And then we're, when we're in that, that mindset, when we're in that mode, there's now instruction, not in law any longer, but in grace. That's the sermon. And then we finish with a song of response. And what's the last thing we do? It's a benediction to say, blessed be God and blessed be those who abide in him. Now go. See, the entirety of our worship service revolves around the retelling of the gospel, God's glory and man's rebellion, Christ's sacrifice, our salvation, our response to living for the glory of God, which is actually what Colossians 3 teaches us to do. The next point is in verse 17, Christ treasuring worship now includes every act of devotion to Christ. And here's how we're starting to see the forest again. Verse 17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Worship is more than just the formal service that we come to. This is the heartbeat of our church where we come and we get refocused, but worship doesn't stop when the final benediction is read. Worship continues Throughout the week it extends to every part of life. this is what Romans 12:1 teaches us as well. These are, this verse is very well known for good reason. Romans 12:1: after 11 chapters of explaining the gospel to us, Paul says this: "I beseech you, I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice." holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, let's, let's unpack this verse for a moment here. Because the verse has several terms that are priestly or sacrificial terms. The technical way to say it is they are cultic imagery, meaning that they're part of Old Testament ritual worship. The word service, the very last verse, was used to describe the priestly duties of worship in the Old Testament. Hebrews 9.6 says, The priests also went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services or their ritual duties. The word sacrifice is well known. And the word present is also part of that language. That when the offering was being laid on the altar, it was being presented to God. So what Paul is teaching here is is radical, and we use that word a lot, right? We use the words like awesome and radical and life-changing all the time, but this is really radical. He is saying that every believer engages in the priestly duty of offering worship to God when they give themselves wholly to God. Instead of offering a lamb on a physical altar, we offer ourselves in living sacrifice to God, and that is worship. And all of this is based on the mercy of God. We can't forget that. We're not earning something with God by doing this. He's not happy with our sacrifices if it's done for our sakes. It's a response to the mercy of God. And when Christ is our treasure, when the mercy of God saves us, and when we're satisfied in him, then every action done in life is worship to him. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, if you're a living sacrifice, that means every part of you is on that altar. Every part. But this isn't something to be feared. I think sometimes I've, I've heard this passage preached like you better do this. You know, hurry up and get on the altar, buddy. Th- this, is, this is a sacred privilege. That, that we are not worshipers in the Old Testament sense. Our worship is now totally transformed in Christ. And I think there are two massive implications of this that, that I think will encourage you. Christ-treasuring worship includes every act of devotion, which means that you can worship day in and day out with simple obedience to Jesus and for Jesus. Every time you obey a command of Scripture, you worship. Every time you resist sin, you're worshiping. Every time you show kindness to another person, you worship. Every time you share the gospel, you worship. Every time you trust the Lord in hardship, you worship. As long as you do what is done for Christ, as long as what you do is done for Christ, That act becomes sweet incense on the altar that you are laid on. You are like a priest offering your sacrificial acts to God. And as a living sacrifice, giving yourself wholly to him. This is what Hebrews 13 talks about. In Hebrews 13, where it says that, that we continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, Hebrews 13, 15. By praising him, by honoring him with our words, we are worshiping. But this also then sanctifies and elevates the common things of life, what we would consider mundane or, or, or just, a, we, they're on a, the to-do list, but they're kind of low priority and we have to do them. It elevates even those things. The reformers in the 1500s and the 1600s talked about the sanctity of work. That coming out of the Middle Ages, the the teaching in the Catholic Church was that it was the priests who were holy and the people, the laity, were common. And the reformers said, no, anyone who comes to faith in Christ can now work in a way that is worship. My work as a pastor is not more holy than your work as an accountant a school teacher, a stay-at-home mom, or a construction worker. Your work is sacred when you do it unto the Lord. And that that gives so much purpose to your work and to your life, to your retirement, to to your daily routine, because it brings meaning to everything you do. Because in that routine, in that daily life, you don't have to read the Bible or study the Bible to please God. You please God by honoring him in the place that he has put you. That means that there are not three or four living sacrifices here because we have four, three, or four, three of pastors here. It's not just the teachers that get to be living sacrifices and honor the Lord. Like we're a first-class Christian, you're second. You know, you get to fly second class, right? Like you board the airline, And you get all the first class people and you're kind of like, maybe someday I get lucky and be up here with them. It's not the way the church is. You see, when we come to Christ, everything, everyone can honor him when we do an act in his name. And the reason that every action can be worship is found at the end of verse 17. There's a reason for this giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 17 says, we give thanks to God the Father through Jesus. And that may seem insignificant, but here's why it's important. Christ-treasuring worship is now spiritual in nature. It's spiritual in nature because it's through Jesus God is the rightful and supreme object of our worship. We give thanks to God, but we worship in the name of Jesus. That means we worship God on the basis of Jesus' work for us. We come and draw near to God by his sacrifice for sin, by his ongoing priestly ministry, as Hebrews so eloquently tells us. Jesus is the primary way God is worshiped. He's the center of true worship, and everything In the Christian life is done for His glory and His name. But Jesus isn't here, is He? We worship now, how? In spirit and in truth. Because, like with everything in the Christian life, we are insufficient to do it in ourselves, we rely on the Spirit of God. But because we have the spirit of God, because he lives in us and empowers us, spiritual worship is not bound by physical things. There's not a prescribed place of worship or a set of rituals to be done in worship. And this is a huge contrast with the Old Testament, right? If you read through the Old Testament, you get into books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. There's chapter upon chapter about the form, the outward form of worship. When you come, I think it's the first six or seven chapters of Numbers. When you come to offer this specific sacrifice, here's where you stand, here's what you do, here's what the priest is gonna do, here's what the priest says. And then they start over with the next sacrifice. And, and and it's all centered around a physical location, it's centered around the tabernacle and later the temple. And that's where sacrifices were meant to be offered. And there was this whole line of priests that were set apart or consecrated to God. But with just a few short words in John 4, Jesus said, in the New Testament, worship is now done in spirit and in truth. You don't have to drive or travel or fly to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem and bring a lamb and have it slaughtered in front of you to worship aren't we thankful? We come to God in spirit and in truth. That means that worship is a spiritual reality, not tied to location. The truth is in Jesus. Therefore, Christ-centered worship, Christ-treasuring worship is spiritual in nature. You see, worship is now a matter of the heart. It can be done at any time, at any place, And as a believer sees God and treasures him and responds to him in a worthy manner, that believer worships. Now, certainly you can take this and say, well, if I can worship anywhere, then I'm going to go skiing on the weekends here, and I'll take a few minutes out on, on maybe on the lift going up, I'll keep it, you know, streamlined, and, and I'll pray a little bit and praise God for the beauty of the powder. Well, you can do that. You should do that. You should do that on Saturday. Because the New Testament calls us, in Hebrews 10, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So by elevating the common things in life to worship status, we are not diminishing the gathering of worship. We come together, and that's how the church all over the world gathers, not in physical locations. You know, sometimes we talk to our children about the church building, and we're Kate and I try to be really uh, careful with calling the building the church because the church is the people. We are the church. But it's hard, right? We're going to go to the church building. It's kind of cumbersome every time you say it. But if you travel all over the world, you'll see that believers are meeting in storefronts. They're meeting in basements because they're persecuted. They're meeting under mango trees. They're meeting in plantations and villages. Why? Because worship isn't a physical location thing Worship is spiritual, and when we are gathered together as the people of God, and we are praising him and responding to him, we're worshiping. It's incredible. There's a tradition among soccer teams in England. They're, they're football teams there, football clubs. But there's a tradition among soccer teams in England to sing before or even after games. And this isn't just like our pitiful attempts to at take me out to the ball game in baseball where half the crowd is leaving and half the crowd is stumbling through it and who knows what else is going on the singing there is really really good it's really good and the most well-known club song is Liverpool's song you'll never walk alone and if you're an Arsenal fan or Manchester United fan sorry look away from the screen but this is the most famous one though Tottenham, another club, uses um, when the Spurs go marching in. That's kind of clever, and that's really fun to listen to. But, but when, when Liverpool begins a game and when they win a game, they sing this, and it's electric. And I think that these moments could honestly be described as worship. There are fifty-five to 60,000 fans who have come together from various walks of life, different ethnicities, perhaps even different languages being spoken, from different classes of people, and they've all come together for a single purpose, to unite and to praise their team. And to watch this game, this spectacle, and their praise overflows out of their love and loyalty, and they follow the movements of the game with intensity. They cheer with thankfulness and joy when they win. They do complain and argue when they lose. But the best teams have this bounce-back mentality even among the fans because even though they've stepped away from the routine of life for a couple of hours, they're going to go from the stadium thinking about what they just saw, reliving the moments, looking forward to the next match that they get to attend. They wear their gear all week. They talk about their team because it's important to them. It's their treasure. And there's an energy and a fervor as they regather the next time in the stadium, especially if it's a big game. There's, there's a buzz that takes place and there's, there's energy and, and, and the announcers can even talk about you know, cutting the energy or, or cutting this through with a knife because it's so thick and there's just, the fans are just waiting to explode. That just sounds like worship to me. And unfortunately, sports teams all over the world have much greater worship than many churches do. We need to lift our eyes up and see the glory of God because no matter how spectacular a match like this would be, I'd love to go to England and and be part of one of those things. Be a great experience but no matter how great the experience is, it doesn't compare to the weekly gathering of the people of God to come and worship him. Their worship is far inferior because we come each week like they do. We gather Taking time out of our routines to unite with other believers who we don't have much in common with, perhaps, but we unite around our shared treasure. Our praise flows out of a Christ saturated life. Our worship has an atmosphere of gratitude for what Jesus has done for us and what we are headed toward. Because worship is spiritual in nature, we go from here to worship in the everyday routine of life, doing things in the name of Jesus, our Savior talking about him and living for him. And our sacrificial living during the week increases our desire to be back among God's people, to unite in worship, to refocus our hearts, to join with the people next to us, to say praise be to our Father and to his Son, Jesus, and the Spirit who indwells us. Christ-treasuring worship, rightly understood and practiced, glorifies God as God, And satisfies our hearts in our creator as we embrace what we were designed to do and to be. You see, God created us to bring him glory. God created us to worship him. And he could have done that in any way that he chose. But what he did in his great kindness is that we are most satisfied and fulfilled when we're doing what we were created to do, which is to glorify God and honor him, and worship him in spirit and in truth. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, let us treasure Christ and worship him in spirit and in truth. Would you pray with me? And as we go to prayer, I'll give you a few moments here to reflect, to make a commitment to the Lord if need be to ask for his grace to live this out this week, and then we'll pray. Oh, Lord, we bow before you as needy people, and yet as people who are so eager to praise you, you've redeemed us, you've ministered to us, you daily bear us up, and, and we struggle in life. I struggled in life this week. And yet when we confess our struggles, you are so kind to us. To not push us away or turn us away, but to receive us. Because you dwell near those that are humble and contrite in heart. And we need help, Lord, to worship you. We are our poor ambassadors for Jesus, poor representatives. But we know that your spirit will continue to change us into his image, to shape us week in and week out. And so we ask for that strength today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.